0: Chapter Twenty Eight of Joaquin, the Claude Duval of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Joaquin, the Claude Duval of California, or the Marauder of the Mines, a Romance Founded on Truth by Henry L. Williams. Chapter Twenty Eight More Murders the captain tells how began and how ended another great robber's career. The state moves, and Captain Love takes up the trail. Gaps in the roll. Joaquin and Three-Fingered Jack fire their last. After two weeks spent in the Stanislaus Valley, Joaquin made for the rivers Mariposa and Merced. He blazed his path as usual by extensive depredations, after which he sent off all his followers except the original half-dozen to the Areo. With them he retired to the rancho of a Mexican of San Jose, killing on the way a Frenchman who kept a public drinking garden and concealed himself there for a while. The host was a secret member of the gang. As they sat by the fire that night, Joaquin fulfilled a half-promise which he had made in times past and related most forcibly the adventures of the celebrated Maseroni. He had learned his particulars from men like Antonio, who knew well the behind-the-scenes of banditti life, and hence what follows is not a mere writer's fancy, but such facts as can be obtained, if you are acute enough, from descendants of Italy of the banditti who acted their parts. The police accounts tell only one half of the story. Masaroni was a young man when, up by the headwaters of the Tagliamento, under the brow of the Alps, he lived to love a young girl of the country. She robbed her parents of other valuables than herself, and accompanied young Alessandro to Venice. For half a year they dwelt together, and marriage was agreed upon by them, but at that time the youth's habits and manners changed. He was away whole nights and days, and, after being profuse in harsh words, one time struck her who had given him all, her future life and happiness, her honor. All the blood of the Italian flamed up at the insult, and she spoke to him as he had little expected to be addressed. Suffice it that he left her, swearing he never would see her more. She let him go, proudly silent, but then bowed her head on her bosom and kissed her own breasts sadly saying, No more mine, no more his. It's only and forevermore. I live for that alone, Alessandro, thou faithless one. In a few weeks, Masaroni had brushed off his regrets and twinges of conscience, and become hand in glove with the bravi of Venice the free, the beautiful, the powerful. His extraordinary good fortune raised him speedily several grades and he soon attained such a position that he could luxuriate during half the week on the proceeds of robberies during the other half for the furtherance of his designs he frequented pretty aristocratic or at least wealthy company for many months he held his assumed place of a stranger, preserving incognite for reasons, silencing the easily corrupted police, and after learning valuable secrets of rakish noblemen. Having them robbed as no other could have done. One night only, as he was about entering a casino or gambling den, a woman stopped him and begged him to follow her to the house of, she said, one who was dying and loved him. He thought it merely one of the two numerous intrigues and shoved her aside. He forgot all about it. Besides, the next day was the great regatta, and he had entered a boat for a race the agreement and stakes to be settled that night. These races are great events in so watery a city as that Bride of the Sea. Next day, the Grand Canal was covered with the flags of countless craft, filled with gaily attired people, while banners floated from the windows of the double rows of palatial buildings all along the aqueous highway. The racers left Castello skirted the scalvonic wharf, and through the Grand Canal to the Grand Church of Santo Lucia, where they turned a flag buoy, and returned to the Foscairo Palace, where a grandstand had been erected for the doge and chief persons. It took some time for the chief matches to be concluded, but then began the private ones. Masseronio's turn was next to the comic one of the women, a most laughable burlesque. The robber's antagonist was an Austrian named Pottergeist. The gondoliers of both craft were Venetians, but the people were all on Masseroni's side, from his being as decidedly a countryman as the other was a foreigner. Off went the two hearse-like boats, keeping together well until out of sight. On the return the two prows were on the same line still, while they seemed to fly over rather than cut through the surface. Good Pietro! Again, again, Giorgio! Bravo! See, si, see, si, he's ahead! Italy forever, down with the Austrian! Masseroni was seated in the little cabin of his boat as his rival was in his, for the gondolas carried weight, which made all the more interesting. But the spectators could not see into the covered receptacle for passengers, though the latter could incite their servants. On Pietro! You are like a winged bird. Five hundred to you if you pass by a length, cried Masseroni. His gondolier looked aslant at his opponent, and by a vigorous bending of his oars gained notably. Keep it up, and they are losers, encouraged Alessandro. Hey there, Giorgio, yelled a mocking voice from the shore. You are slow. Is that a fat friar you've aboard who wants to go gingerly after his dinner? The Austrian's man doubled his exertions and recovered his former position of neck and neck. Cheers rang along each edge of the water, with intermingling taunts and laughs. "'On, on, Pietro, never fear!' "'Fear, Signor, by St. Mark, if I had my gunwale loaded down to the very water, I'd wager to beat Giorgio in his skiff empty.' The two kept very equal." whenever one slackened his exertions for a space, the other shot ahead, only to be overtaken similarly when his burst died away. "'Good heart, Pietro!' cried Masseroni, appearing in the cabin entrance. "'The goal is near. Think of the crowd a-looking!' "'A fico for them, senor!' answered the man, working as untiringly as if his muscles were of steel." By Santa Maria del Rosario, you may rely on the Rhone. Tough work, though, murmured he. These Italian gondoliers are weariless fellows, said Joaquin, like those boatmen on the Chagres River who pull the barges against the current. They don't know fatigue when they are at work, and only feel tired when resting, you understand, amigos? The gondolier's speech had been heard by the Austrian on the other bark and he said to his man severely, "'Giorgio, you hear?' "'Bah, his tongue works better than his arms,' muttered Giorgio. "'I'll be blank if I don't sail in first. Your five thousand crowns are safe to you as if they were in the bank, per bacco. A thousand are yours in that case, besides a full indulgence that I will get of the papal legate for your soul.' "'Ha! no more words, see!' Giorgio closed his lips, knit his brows in resolution, and so well expended his power that he drew a whole length ahead of the other. "'The Austrian forever!' cried many. "'Bravo, my man!' shouted Pottergeist. "'Pietro, you villain, you're asleep!' yelled Alessandro. "'Am I?' returned the boatman, making an effort, and slightly more than recovering his distance. "Pooh, I've been three years on the waters more than that Giorgio!' but Massaroni's growing fears were far from being quieted. That Giorgio seemed to have but the one idea, that of overcoming his adversary by tiring him out, which in fact he promised yet to do. He shot a bit ahead, and every time that his contestant endeavoured to come up to him, he put out his force so that Massaroni's champion, exhausted considerably by his efforts, was compelled to work almost double to even keep in the other's wake. These tactics so well aided Giorgio, that he and his master became confident that if things kept on as they were, to them would be the victory. Pottergeist understood the plan, no doubt, for he fell back into the little cabin after saying, a thousand. "'Get em ready, master,' replied the boatman, straining at the oars. "'You're failing, Pietro,' cried his employer, clutching the curtains with his nervous fingers. That wretch goes like the devil! The end was so near that both the principals came out of the cabins and stood in full view like the boatmen. "'I'll beat the devil, be sure, master mine!' growled Pietro, bending to it. He was fully behind the Austrian, but he flattered himself that, with an extraordinary essay he could at least recover the former place of side by side as he had managed to do before. But Giorgio, attentive to his movements, put out all his strength simultaneously with Pietro, and if anything gained something by the exertion. But what finished the lingering of Masseroni's hopes was that the opposing gondolier, three times in succession, repeated as many long sweeps of the oar a thunder of acclamation broke on either side and echoed in the cornices and niches of the carved windows. "'Malediction on you!' roared Masseroni. "'What flattery ever made you take to gondolas for a living, old helpless Pietro? Two thousand for you if you come in ahead!' "'I'll do it if nothing breaks!' Already incited by vanity and rivalry, and now super-excited by the reward, the loser made immense efforts. He seemed to forget to breathe, and his oars were hardly to be seen feathering. They moved like the sails of a windmill. Hope returned to Massaroni, but he was only to have a short taste of joy. The goal was at hand, all were on the alert, and too much interested to make a sound of either applause or censure. But Giorgio had spared his skill and power for this dash, and when he saw his adversary flurried and rowing desperately, he felt sure that he was the victor. Pietro was like the jockey who plies the persuaders and the thong on his beaten horse, Giorgio the one who comes in without having touched his steed with spur or whip. He plied his oars as regularly as if he were at an everyday work. "'One! One!' cried Masseroni as his gondola forged ahead." the flag-boat to be passed was not twenty yards off. At that very moment poor Pietro fell forward on his oars, which were jerked up out of the water, and measured his length forward. The Austrian flew on amid waving of hats and veils, a fluttering of flowers and fans, and cheers and clapping of hands. The other boat, nevertheless, followed and ran gently against the victor. "'Allow me your hand, Signor Alessandro,' said Pottergeist, as he stood on the quay. You have lost my friend, but, per our horses ran well. Masseroni felt an awful thirst for the speaker's blood, but that was not to be indulged in there, of course, amid that throng. He could not conceal his pallor, but he felt he had to put on dignity. So he kept down his envy and hatred, and forced a laugh as he gave the winner his hand. Our men have well run, said he. There is no doubt of that. I'm afraid, though, that my old waterman is hurt. He's dead, see, said half a dozen voices. Burst a blood vessel. Oh, no odds, remarked the captain. A couple of patters and some masses will make it all well, for Pietro is without kith or kin. That was remedied, and Masseroni left the crowd. That night, into a certain casino, sauntered he. He had some money, how obtained no matter. He wore his most smiling mask, for his pride would have suffered if he had fancied any of the bystanders pitied him. Luckily for him, his friends were feasting, and he was well warmed up by the supper. He was the first to speak of his defeat and offer to pay the bet. But, said he, do you mind trying if cards are as much against me as gondolas, Pottergeist? Shall we say double or quits? Just as you like, the double eagle can outsource St. Mark's Lion at everything, rejoined the Austrian gaily. Chance was for Maceroni at the first, and he cleared off his debt. Then he staked money and won game after game, when, as the Austrian was drained pretty deeply, he gained a considerable stake. Time for you, said Masaroni, forgetting himself. At cards there is always time, answered the other coolly. Let's keep on as I want to play on to the end, the blade, then the handle, and even the knob on the hilt after that. Just what I was going to say. It was Masaroni's turn to lose what was before him, The other appeared to regulate his play and make him pass through all the variations of the sliding scale which he had lately undergone, until a thousand crowns was his antagonist's all. "'Time for you!' murmured he. "'What do you mean?' "'Oh, nothing. I was merely thinking what a fine thing it is for people to keep cool.' "'What?' but the tone of this exclamation gave Pottergeist caution and he was too experienced a gambler to quarrel with a man who yet had money. So he smoothed his brow and met the Italian's stake. By the by, will you take my word for thrice this, so as to make it four thousand? Certainly. You have lost me, cara," added the Austrian in triumph. The devil has bewitched the cards, said Alessandro, tossing off a bumper. The devil again, the drink's bitter and he put down the glass so roughly that it fell off and smashed on the floor. "'Bad omen!' croaked some neighboring voice. "'Thank you, unknown senor,' sneered the ruined gamester. "'A pretty prophecy after the fact. Good or bad, I'll play no longer with you, Pottergeist. Where's my young friend Montefiore?' "'Busy,' answered the Austrian. "'He always loses at cards with you, but he gains over you in the good graces of lovely Silvia. By the by, how is she? You saw her at the regatta as well as I. Do you laugh at me? Bacchus forbid. Alessandro turned and left the saloon. By the good Saint Pantaleone, he's very pale. Young Pisano looked so the night when he leaped off the molo with a huge stone in his cloak to sink him, remarked someone. Tush! Maceroni is more like to kill than self-kill,' said another. Meanwhile, the subject of these remarks had rushed frantically away toward his fashionable lodgings. As he was wildly picking his way through the labyrinth of poverty-stricken lanes that were behind the canal banks' grand and splendid buildings, he heard a cry of, "'Help!' "'Help!' he wanted it himself, and fancied that Satan was mocking him. "'All was lost.' Gold was gone, and he had dipped already in his mistress Sylvia's purse, shameful as he considered her gift. Midnight assassinations and robberies had ceased to pay, for the nobles had larger escorts than ever when they went visiting, since crimes had of late grown so numerous. Help! was the cry once more. More deeply affected than he ought to have been to all appearance, Alessandro stopped and listened an infant's wail joined in the outcries. He strode through the mud up a miry alley, a feeble light gleamed before him. He burst in a door of a hovel. By the glimmer of a dying lamp Alessandro beheld, on a heap of mouldy straw, a shape of a woman who, writhing in the pangs of the fever of the marshes, uttered the screams he had heard. Near her was a quite young babe, whose similar cries grew weaker and weaker every time. The fine but unkempt hair streamed over the mother's face, but, at the crash of the stove-in door, she seemed to collect her forces sufficiently to sit half up and say in the awful voice, hollow and hoarse, Bread! Bread! Something to eat! At the voice, at the sight presented, Macerone drew back as if the fuse of a powder-mine had been burning at his feet. Indescribable horror overcame his senses, and for an instant he had much ado not to believe himself a plaything of delirium. Was this real, or had his losses driven him mad? The walls streaming with damp, like the plashy floor, the wretched mockery of a bed, the dying child, the wasted wreck of a mother this complete picture of thirst and hunger added to the worst of woes. Was it possible on an earth over which rounded God's heaven? But this shadow of a woman, this mere reflection of one of the darlings of man, she to be here of all. Satan must have enrobed himself in that shell to wound him with many a dreadful reflection. The features, thinned as they were, were but too well known to him. Yet could those faded, sunken cheeks be the same on which he rained his tears of excessive joy and kisses of immoderate rapture in the days of their enticing bloom? Those hands, fine as threads, mere bone, extended to him in all the anguish of despairing supplication. They had a thousand times thrilled joy into him when interlaced with his own, and those eyes, bright with fever and approaching madness, could they ever have been the twin wells from which had poured the bliss which he had bathed in, ravished and sworn to be inexhaustible? "'Asalia, is it you?' gasped he, trembling to receive the answer. "'Bread, bread!' was all the poor creature could say as she fell back on the straw. "'Speak, speak again!' cried the man, moving nearer to the rotting couch. "'Is it you, Asalia?' Isalia, I say, is it you? Ah, Alessandro, all is not lost if it's you. I die, no bread, for four days starving, and the baby cannot. Good God, can it be? Hello, ho there, help, help, bread, bread. But louder though his voice was than hers, no better fortune was his. Not a sound replied no one comes, whispered she. Go yourself for a drop of water, a crumb of bread. Don't let me die now, Pandro, with our child. Our child? Wait, wait, hope, hope, I will make you happy. So saying, he kissed avidly her wasted hands, he flung himself on his knees on the cold floor, kissed her again and again, then the infant's forehead, until suddenly called to their state he sprang up and rushed away the air of the street so contrasted with that of the valley and the hovel that it made him shudder and reel he hesitated at that hour every house was closed and the streets and canals untenanted except by miscreants and the police which latter he feared more than the other from being on only too intimate a footing with them he made for his residence, running at the top of his speed. Long and loudly did he knock at the door, swearing at the sluggish servants, and trying to break in. But the whole household was away. He remembered. Confusion! I said I would be at the ball, and gave them leave to be out all night like myself. My valet is to await me at Sylvia's. To Sylvia's, then! Off again he set like a madman, Lights burned at the courtesans, and he almost instantly was led in. He very nearly upset the porter. Before flying up the staircase, he turned and, seeing behind him the shuddering servant, cried imperiously, "'Joby! Bread! Wine! Instantly!' Poor Joby, as terrified as his patient biblical namesake was at the advent of the whirlwind, ran away to obey his orders, and tell the kitchen-girl of his mistress's lover's state, relating circumstantially how he must have beheld the ghost of the headless Folliero, or the armless gondolier of the Canal della Giudecca, or the twin ballet-girls of the Apollo Theatre who had been flying off the Campo di Marte bridge by drunken scions of noble houses. In the meantime, Masseroni had ascended the steps and pounded at Silvia's room. Delay. At last, the waiting maid opened and gave a shriek of alarm at sight of his appalling face. She thought her last hour had come when those flaming eyes poured a scorching fire on her, but he was impelled by too great emotion to quarrel with the servant for her slowness. Like a thunderbolt, he burst through the door of Sylvia's bedroom. Now he recoiled. Instead of finding the lovely courtesan abed and asleep, She was dressed and standing pale and agitated, leaning on the arm of a sofa. But Alessandro was not in a mood to calmly analyze his surprise. "'Do you love me, Sylvia?' he asked. "'What do you mean?' stammered she, her limbs failing her, she almost shrieked. "'Don't look at me so!' "'Loving me or not, I must save her. I have spent heaven knows how much on you. Give me some money!' The astounded Aspasia was far from understanding, but with an earnestness given to her by the fear of irritating Alessandro, she mechanically unlocked her sacket and poured out the coin into her chief lover's hands. She was going to add her jewelry when, to her still greater surprise, Masaroni rushed out as abruptly as he had come, pocketing the money. In a few instants the watering-maid came in to say, "'Whatever will become of us, the Signor has gone away with a loaf of bread under each arm "'and Pietro with a basket of wine.' "'What can this mean?' murmured Silvia, sinking on the sofa. "'I am ready to perish with fear.' "'Keep up a good heart, lovely one,' said a man's voice, that of Montefiore. "'I'll run to the casino and learn all. "'If he has found all out, believe me, you will not suffer from his anger.' "'What do you mean? Why, youth, he can undoubtedly defeat you at sword, stiletto, or pistolet,' said the courtesan, seemingly to awaken to the superiority of the lover she deceived over her present dialogist. Montefiore dismissed the maid. "'I fight him, not as duelist, but as an unconquerable,' returned he proudly then. "'Who are you?' demanded Sylvia, letting a scrutinizing look dwell upon his face. "'You're not rich, or you would not levy on me, whose love, too, you have forced from me. Who, who?' "'Either tremble or be fearless, my cherished one, no matter,' laughed the young man. "'It is true, anyway, that I bear a talisman that opens all doors and puts all at my command.' "'I am Montal, the second inquisitor, next to Monsieur Grand himself.' "'Phew!' gasped the woman with blanched cheeks. "'But only a lover to you, dear charmer.' She smiled and turned away playfully, but if the executor of the Orders of the Terrible Ten had more attentively watched her, he would have seen her dash a tear from her eyes, and could he have read her thoughts but few men ever did that to woman. He would have found one thus. I love Alessandro more than ever, now that I find I was right to feel disgust at this wretch forcing himself on me. "'Is it true?' said she, with cunning. "'True! Behold!' and he triumphantly flaunted a yellow card, dotted in one corner with a black seal— whose melted wax had fastened a little ribbon of sable and a gold stripe to it. She shuddered. That piece of pasteboard was as powerful as many a noble's purse or sword. "'I must escape from the city,' she thought. "'It is worse than death to be in his arms.' Nevertheless, she had to resign herself to them and assume her most winning air. But her unpleasant task was not long imposed upon her, and she thanked whatever divinity her courtesan's heart might worship, when a prolonged knocking at the front door of her mansion gave her relief. Montefiore jumped up, and did not look to be the fearless man he should have been, and he grasped his sword-hilt with a weak hand. He had always ordered the domestics to delay anybody's entrance so as to give him time to hide or to escape. It was time to do the latter." He hastened to press a kiss upon the yielding, yet plump lips of the lace. She, while mechanically suffering the salute, used one of her hands in what appeared to be a caress, but was that wire-dip known then as now to pick pockets. Montefiore rushed from the room and upstairs to get away over the rooftops, while a sound of steps coming up the stairs made him speed quicker, and the mistress smile in anticipation. "'Alessandro comes! Thank heaven! With this we will give Venice good-bye,' she said as she looked at an object in her hand. The yellow card. The steps approached, and the waiting-maid entered. "'Señora! Señora! Senor Alessandro took Pietro into the alley of Santa Maria del Orto, where they found a woman and a child dead, just dead of hunger. Skin and bones, my lady!' Then the senor flung down the bread and was going to fling away the money he had in his pockets, when he remembered himself, kissed the poor woman and child, wept, sobbed himself quiet, and then rushed off, saying he was going to pay his debts, first to man, then to nature. "'Kill himself?' "'I'm afraid so,' rejoined the servant. "'My course is clear. Send me Alvarez the Spaniard and Pietro, quick.' as the servant said, so had Maceroni acted on finding himself too late on the return to Assalia When convinced they were beyond earthly reach, he gave way to heartbreaking rage till calm by exhaustion. Subdued in appearance, till not a soul suspected his slumbering, volcanic feeling, he entered the casino which had been the first step of his abandonment of the dead one. On entering, He refused to drink with an acquaintance, and looked around for someone. While searching, the object of his scrutiny came up to him and suddenly said, "'Beg pardon, wanted to see you. I've a debt to pay. Can you—' "'Pay mine, Pottergeist? What does such a question mean?' "'Just what I say. If you can pay me, do so.' The ebbed blood flowed into his visage from his heart, but Maseroni only approached the nearest table and flung upon it the contents of his pockets. "'Count,' said he to the Austrian. Three crowns short,' answered the latter. Alessandro pulled a ring off his finger. "'You was with me under the Palazzo Mocenigo when I bought it.' "'I'm satisfied.' At this moment one of the coins slipped off to the ground. "'You handle money less skillfully than cards.' said Alessandro, with raillery. Do you mean I cheat at play? furiously demanded the German. I mean what I say, retorted the Italian. The Austrian's eyes launched fire, while the others replied no less brilliantly. A circle began to form. If you're not as white of heart as saucy of tongue, said Pottergeist, a duck alone can be what you're driving at. Before the speaker had finished, Alessandro did that act which anybody, and an Italian above all, considers the height of insult. He spat in the hollow of his hand, and slapped the German's cheek. That cheek, and the whole face of course, grew white as a virgin sheet, and he plunged his hand into his bosom for a weapon, no doubt, but a murmur, and the sight of so many round about, checked that design." "'Actions speak louder than words,' remarked Masseroni. "'I do want a duel to the death with you, cheat!' "'Single combat is prohibited strictly,' said somebody. "'Silence!' shouted about twenty voices. "'Gentlemen do not run after the police.' "'Come!' cried Masseroni. "'Come into the fencing hall. "'These gentlemen will be seconds and witnesses.' A rush was made into the designated room, for these casinos have reading-rooms, libraries, and other apartments attached to the drinking saloon portion. The door was closed. A couple of foils had the buttons snapped off, leaving an ugly, jagged point on each. Before fighting, of course the victor will be let go undisturbed, said Pottergeist. Of course, answered the Italian. Venetians are too much men of honor not to make that a matter understood but you shall not profit by the leave. We'll see, thunder and lightning. The long steel threads clashed in equal rage, but with different result. At the first engagement, Masseroni's shirt-sleeve was torn off his shoulder, but his weapon ran deeply into the breast of the German, who dropped, mortally wounded. Away! shouted all. Alessandro darted out of the hall as if a fresh crime was not burdening his shoulders. At the door, he came in contact with a man running towards the casino. It was Montefiore. With a wrestling trick learnt in the country in his youth, Alessandro gave the runner the foot, and down he sprawled, his head cracking against the doorpost in so severe a way that he was certain not to revive for some moments. The victor in this surprise very quickly and tranquilly removed the senseless man's sword and belt and set off again, girding on the baldric as he ran. While this was occurring, Sylvia had secured her jewels on her person, and at length, calling her maid, she gave her a splendid pair of bracelets. Take one of the serving men and haste to the Jew of whom the Count Cellini bought these. Make him give you half the value in cash, bring it to San Marco Church at once. While this mission was in progress. Sylvia put on a couple of cloaks and slipped out of the house privately. The night was growing darker, and the courtesan was almost delighted to be under the gleam of the pendant lamps of the great church. She surveyed the interior carelessly when all of a sudden her eyes rested on a form kneeling under a painting of a minor saint, Saint Alexander. She softly approached. All was so hushed in the lonely edifice that she heard her heart leap, It was Masseroni praying to his patron saint. Should he try to retrieve his career of evil for the sake of the dead Isalia, or continue it for the sake of his guilty self? While he wavered, a pair of soft arms embraced him, and lips touched his cheek. Sylvia knelt beside him. "'I love you. I must leave the city. Will you come and be my joy, or not and make me a miserable outlaw?' I will go with you. I have killed Pottergeist the German, and Montefiore, perhaps. You did not know it. My brave and gallant Alessandro, an Alexander-like of old, I love you all the more. Come, come. I was going to leave the city, he began. And I. And the world, added he hoarsely. No, no, and break my heart? "'Loved one, dear, my life of lives, no, no!' And her lips found the way to his this time. When the maid who had been dispatched on the errand came to the church, she found Massaroni, gloomy but resolved, beside her mistress. "'Have you the money?' cried the latter. "'Yes, but I could not be any sooner.' "'Very well, go home. All there of mine is yours.' now, my Alessandro, follow me to the shore. The rising wind and the obscurity foreboded a night such as the fugitives wished, for the spiri were sufficiently dangerous without the moon to guide them in the chase. Hasty steps suddenly became audible behind them, after they had been walking swiftly for a few seconds. They were by one of the three hundred bridges of the Adriatic's bride. They ran over it and hid themselves under the hanging doorway of a second-hand clothesman's shop. Several men came along and crossed the canal at a run. "'Keep on to the left while I take the right and see if any of the boats shelter them,' shouted a voice which the listeners recognized as Montiafieres. They obeyed. "'The safest course is to follow the wretch,' said Maseroni. "'He is alone and far from dangerous.' On he marched then, followed by his mistress. Soon they overtook Montefiore, who had stopped to awaken several gondoliers and ask them questions to which he got no satisfactory answers, of course. He pursued his way, swearing. Maseroni let him go on for a while, till he believed him to be far enough off, when he strode directly up to a gondolier, tapped him on the shoulder, and whispered, fifty ducats for a trip to Trieste. "'Who are you? Are you the man they are after?' queried the boatman. "'I shouldn't take you for a thousand, "'My man,' interposed Sylvia, "'you run no danger. See!' She displayed the yellow card, which put an end to his obstinacy. "'I'm ready,' said he to the astounded Masaroni. The two entered the boat but, after they had snugly ensconced themselves, a man presented himself just as the gondolier was unloosening the painter from its ring. It was Montefiore. "'You're in danger, friend,' said he. "'I saw two shadows beside yourself here. I forbid you to shove off in the name of—' He had leaped on the boat, when a beautiful white arm, an arm with which its mate had often been around him in compulsory embrace, arose over his head armed with the end of a broken oar, and down he went in the doorway of the cabin. Maseroni's hand could hardly have delivered a more powerful blow than this of Sylvia's. "'Push off,' said Alessandro. Stimulated by fear as well as by the ample pay, the boatman was soon cleaving the boisterous water. "'We are served,' said Sylvia, enfolding her lover in her arms. "'But this man, what will we do with him?' "'You can hardly have killed him.' "'I hope so,' said she earnestly. "'Anyhow, he must never look upon Venice or the world anywhere again.' The presence of Montefiore was to the courtesan a sleeping horror, for one word from him would have changed her companion's love into scorn, and even if she revealed the true position of the senseless wretch, she could not hope to reinstate herself.' With a strength which her alarm gave her, she half-raised the lifeless form out of the hollow of the boat and tried to cast it overboard. "'Stop!' cried Alessandro. But woman's hate is swift. The body was already vanishing in the crested waves. "'Señor,' said the gondolier, "'red galley is cruising to-night. I saw her awful sides bloodily shining in the sunset as she went down the port.' what shall I answer if we are hailed?' "'There!' replied Sylvia, panting yet with her emotion. "'Show them that card. Trieste, Trieste, you must haste to it!' Tossing the purloined pasteboard to the man, she drew her companion into the little cabin and pressed him with frenzy to her bosom. "'We are safe, we are happy,' said she." Masseroni, his brain too much in a whirl to think in the least calmly, gave himself up to repose. Meanwhile, the storm, which had hung over the Adriatic for the last two hours, burst in all its violence, and the billows heaved as high as if they were those of the broader Mediterranean. The fragile gondola, ill-adapted for rough weather, hardly answered to the strokes of the oarsman. He called Masseroni to his aid, and, with an air gloomy though respectful, asked him to try his hand at propulsion until he could take a rest. You tempted me with your gold, said he, and heaven punishes me for yielding to it. Son, Marco, do you hear a cannon shot? If the ships big as houses are in danger, what chance has my poor boat? Row, senor, for I will soon need all my strength, to swim perhaps." Alessandro did his best at the oars, but his lack of skill rendered his good will useless. "'We'll be broadside to it if you go on so,' said the gondolier impatiently. "'Take the oars yourself, sirrah,' interposed Sylvia, who was the most courageous of all. "'I double the promised sum if you bring me into Trieste.' "'That's something, like, but if we go down—' "'We cannot help it.' but we will arrive, I say. The man retook the oars, and Alessandro returned to sit beside his companion, who, affecting weakness now, let herself recline on his breast. The waves rose and rose, and the thunder, suddenly unloosed, rolled with few interruptions. The flashes kept the eyes in a state of dazzlement. Suddenly the oars ceased to buffet the rollers, and the man hid his face in horny palms. A scream even issued from Sylvia's mouth as she turned aside in horror. "'Help, help!' faintly said a voice. "'In the name of the Holy, give me help!' An enormous billow swept onward and broke near the bank. A zigzag of the electric fluid ran along the crest down into the trough. Alessandro, bending his sight towards where had come the voice, was seized like his companions with deep affright, for there seemed to stand amid the spray that very Montefiore who was deemed dead. In truth, only stunned by Sylvia's blow, and brought to consciousness while the plaything of the waters, he had been taken off to sea by a recoiling current, and caught by the reflux, was apparently driving back the gondola of his slayers. The loss of blood which he had experienced Had made him too weak to swim, and he was still living only by a miracle. On beholding the boat, a little hope had been kindled within him, and not recognizing its occupants, he had gasped between two mouthfuls of brine his imploring cry. But his hour had come. The second wave broke over him and sent him under, and the third dashed him against the gondola, while its snowy front reddened with his blood and nothing more was seen of him. "'A spirit!' cried the gondolier, rowing again. "'Heaven have mercy on us!' "'It will not have mercy on me!' groaned Masseroni in despair. "'How many horrors the last few hours have deluged me with! Oh, Sylvia, were it not for you, I would plunge into the deep to join my happier victims!' The courtesan, spray-bedewed, exhausted, terrified, was too much affected to answer. She could not fill her lover with energy, which she was far from having herself. Silence reigned over the bark, except the soughing of the wind and the prayers of the boatmen. Finally, the tempest sensibly abated, and the first gleams of the dawn appeared, while the gondola became more manageable. The fugitives breathed again, and indulged in mutual caresses. The boatman especially hailed the daybreak. Here we are all right, I hope, holy virgin, but my little boat has done her duty. Not a one of my mateses could have breasted such hillocks of foam. But, goodness of heaven, how we are bearing! Thunder! The wind shifted in the dusk, and here we are turned round, so that San Marco's dome is in sight and, oh, senor, senor, back into the cabin, here comes the red galley, hide yourselves. Indeed, from one side bore down upon the gondola a six-oared galley of an appalling character. Blood-red were its sides, its prow and stern, and its large cabin, with ample hangings, being scarlet as well, the only relief being embroidery in shiny black silk. A lantern was stuck in the ornamented beak, which bore a gilt lion, and its glass sides, broken by slaps of waves, however, were stained red. The oarsmen were attired in sable imitation velvet, as were four speary holding muskets. As the barge approached, a black-robed man, wearing a silk mask and cap with one long plume, appeared in the cabin entrance it had evidently been out all night, and was returning to Venice. In the name of Monsieur Grand, Grand High Servitor of the Inquisitors of the State and Prime Executioner of the Ever-Just Orders of the Honored Council of Ten, chanted another black robe, appearing behind the first, evidently a secretary, Cease motion, gondolier! He was obeyed. You are out early for customers. Have you any within? went on the clerk. I couldn't help it. A will stronger than mine drove me out of port, answered the gondolier. Oh, the tempest, said the clerk, who appeared in good humor. No, a power higher even than that, said the boatman, affecting a great belief in his blasphemy, as he displayed the yellow card and jerked his thumb significantly towards his cabin, which had been the object of the messire's scrutiny. Ah, said the latter, speaking instead of the clerk this time. "'Go on, sorry to have detained you. Bound to Trieste?' The gondolier looked grave and important. "'Very well. Wherever you land, spread the news that the murderers of Duke Descarly of Barbarigo are caught and in our power,' said the messer proudly and loudly. Two men, bound hand and foot, were indeed inside the cabin of the barge, which now moved off rapidly under the stout arms of the six men. The little gondola resumed its course until the galley was a mere crimson dot on the grey waters. Day was come. The gondolier shipped his oars, entered the cabin, opened a locker, and took out a bottle, whose large mouth was capped with a pewter cup, which was also the stopper. He offered his patron a drink, which did Massaroni good, and took two or three times the same dose with much gusto. He took to the oars again, fresh as a rose. He said, "'And up comes the sun, huzzah! Warm me, old boy of brightness, for I never hoped to see you again, yellow face,' said he." The god of gladness had indeed pierced the clouds and poured his startling beams over the scarcely soothed scene. The Adriatic was level enough to reflect in the distance the sails of moored ships and of fishing boats leaving port. The sky and land were assuming that loveliness which is elsewhere known in only Turkey, India, Oceanica, and parts of America. Masseroni was affected by the beauty, and by the beauty of the woman by his side. Her words so coincided with his thoughts that, on landing at Trieste, Alessandro Maseroni was ready to be whatever that enchantress desired. His all was complete. End of chapter twenty eight.